Sherry. It's the Lee and Sherry show. So, so the running joke with this is last week, I give Lee the announcements. I literally am like, hey, Lee, one, two, three, just file down the line. It's really easy. And we got to one, two, and then we just forgot three, four, and five. So I don't know what it is. So, hey, listen, kids, you are dismissed for Sunday school. Let me pray for us, and we will get started. Um, hey, listen, I'm going to be up front with you and tell you this, that uh, whenever I am involved in a sermon, leading up to that sermon, it's almost like God takes me on a journey to get to this sermon. And so guess what? Uh, for my poor wife, this week was a rough week coming from me because today we're going to talk about the crucifixion. And so this week, uh, Eric's emotions were kind of all over the place. Uh, but I'm going to tell you that it's almost like God says, Eric, I'm going to take you through this journey and it's going to start Sunday after service, and it's going to wind through Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. But then Saturday, I'm going to turn the corner with you, and you're going to see things a little bit different and feel different about it. So I want you to know that this morning, I woke up actually very excited to speak about the crucifixion, and I think you're going to see where the journey is going to go with it. So let me pray for us, and we will go uh, full bore into this. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day, Lord, and today, uh, much sharing and wonderful things that we hear, Lord, um, because the reality is, Lord, is this world is filled with brokenness. This world is filled with suffering. This world is filled with tragedy. This, filled, this world is just filled with things that sometimes it's hard for us to process. But Lord, I am so grateful that I don't have to have the answer. And I am so grateful, Lord, that in these times, as Sue said, I can just worship you and I can look to you, the author and the finisher of my salvation. And so, God, as we open up your word, Lord, stir in us, push us, pull us, Lord. Take us to a different place, Lord, as we study perhaps one of the most holy moments in all of humanity. And so we thank you for this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you could, you could open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Now, some of you are going to wait a minute. I thought we were talking about the crucifixion, and that's in Mark chapter 15, and we will be speaking about that. But I wanted to start off in Exodus 20. Now, when I was a little kid, I can remember, how many people had an experience where you went to some kind of like vacation Bible school or something like that? Um, I used to always think that it was weird that they linked together vacation and school. I, I used to just say, why not just call it adventures at church or something like that? But vacation Bible school felt like punishment. And my mom would say, you should call your friend and say, hey, hey Ross, uh, do you want to go with me to vacation Bible school? <laughs> no. <laughs> hey, do you want to go? We're going to go play dodgeball. Okay, great. But here's the thing that I had a question that went through my head when I was a little kid. And maybe some of you thought this. I knew that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I understood that from an early age. I don't know that it had an impact on my life until I was a teenager. But here's the question I had. How many of you, when you first heard about the cross, and you hear about this, like, the brutality of the crucifixion, how many people saw the passion of the Christ? I think I've seen The Passion of the Christ twice. I don't know if I could watch it again because it's, it's, it's just so tough. I remember thinking, 
all right, Jesus, if you had to die for our sins, why did it have to be this brutal? In other words, wouldn't you think, like when I was a kid, I, I, I remember thinking, what if he just stood before like a firing squad? Of course, they didn't have guns back then. At least I don't think that, did they? Probably not, no. Not even in the message, they didn't even have guns written in there, right? But you, you think, do they have, like, or, or what if he got hung? Or what if he got beheaded or something like this? But the cross? Like, why does it have to be so torturous? Why does it have to be so awful? Well, as I've gotten older, I think I know the answer. And the answer is in Exodus 20. Of course, everyone remembers the Ten Commandments. And so I want to go through briefly the Ten Commandments, but I want to tell you my three for the road number one. And my three for the road number one is we have swallowed the hook. We have swallowed the hook. The Ten Commandments, really the whole Bible deals with two things. Everything in the Bible deals with two things. Our vertical relationship with God and our horizontal relationship with one another. A cross, ironically. And Exodus 20 has to deal with our relationship with God and how we relate to one another. And these are the rules. This is the structure of society. This is the structure of your life. And what I want to do is I want to give you a simple test. We'll go through the Ten Commandments and we'll see how we're doing. Okay, so again, I'm not going to dwell on this real long, but let's just breeze through here. Commandment number one, you should have no other God before me, which is idolatry, all right? Now this may seem pretty simple, simple and straightforward, but how often are we tempted to put anything or anyone in front of God? Relationships, money, materialism, self-gratification, all of these things, God says, that is idolatry. Now, we don't like to call it that. We say, well, no, I'm just trying to relax. Or no, I just want something better in life. But suddenly, it can take a pedestal in our life. Second commandment. So how many people might be in, in trouble with the idolatry thing? Okay, good. Bob White, that's it. Okay. So Bob and Sue both raised their hands. So there's our worship team. Okay, one in the back. Great. All right. So we might be 0 for 1 here. Okay, here we go. The second one. You shall not make for yourself carved images, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or earth beneath it, or that it is in water under the earth. You shall not bow to them or to serve them. Now this one can be tricky. We make statues and different things like that, and some of them are out of artistic expression. But there are religions that literally worship stone idols. And they're alive and well in this country as well as in Japan. Maybe not as overtly as they are in Japan, but they're alive in this country as well. But how many of you have ever felt like you've bowed a knee to something a little bit? Maybe I don't now, but I'm going to tell you that for a long while... If you had to say, Eric, what's your God? I would say, oh, I only serve God. But the reality is, is God would hold up a soccer ball and said, Eric, this little piece of leather is your God. And you chase this thing everywhere it goes. Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Okay, so we're 0 for 2. I don't even want to dwell on this very long. How many are 0 for 3? Right? Isn't it amazing that you can be working in the garage, 
and hurt your hand on something or hit it with a hammer. And of all the names in the universe that you're going to curse by, do you curse by Joseph Stalin or Adolf Hitler? No. Whose name do we curse by? Do not use the Lord your God's name in vain. How many people are in trouble? Okay, just me. And by the way, I'm your pastor. Number four, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Jesus says in Mark 2, he says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Believe it or not, this commandment deals with both of our relationship with God and with one another. We need to spiritually, spiritually physically, mentally, and emotionally recharge. How many of you are guilty of not keeping a Sabbath because you are spiritually burnt out, physically burnt out, relationally burnt out, mentally burnt out, and emotionally burnt out, and it's your own fault? God knows a few things. Number five, honor your father and mother. Just raise your hand, you're guilty. Right? Um, this is not just when you're young as well as when you're aged. And we live in a society that worships youth. And somehow as people get older, a lot of times we can almost treat it as disdain. And almost that they're in the way or slowing us up. But how many of us are guilty of disrespect of our parents? I know that I am. Then, all of a sudden, when I was young, I thought I had a reprieve. Because number six, do not murder. Woo-hoo! I'm okay. But then I'm going to tell you something. Whatever religiosity you build up in your life, Jesus will come and mess it up. Because what does Jesus say in Matthew 5? You have heard it said of those of, of, those of old. You shall not murder. Whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without just cause is in danger of judgment. Now, a lot of people say, oh, but Eric, I've had just cause to be angry. Okay, let me ask you this. Let me tell you what just, what anger without just cause is. Anybody ever think racist thoughts? Because racism is anger without a just cause. How many people have ever looked at someone and because of the way they talk or the way they look or the color of their skin, you somehow think less of them? I know I have. How many people are in trouble? We're in trouble. All right, let's keep going. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Now you think, all right, I'm okay with this. I'm doing all right. But what does Jesus do? Well, he'll mess up whatever you think you're doing all right. In Matthew 5, 27, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, Whoever looks at a woman uh, to lust with her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. How many of you have committed adultery in the heart? No one wants to raise their hand for this, except for me and Lee. Right? We're not doing well. We're not doing well. Number nine, you shall not bear. Oh, I'm sorry, number eight, you shall not steal. Anybody stolen something? How about this? Has anyone ever cheated on a test? Okay, so Sue, when you cheated on that test, just to make sure that you weren't stealing, when you wrote down the answer, did you put in parentheses around it, I got this from the person sitting next to me? No, you didn't. So you took something that wasn't yours and made it seem like it was yours. You're a thief, right? How many of us have ever stolen? Yeah. How many people are feeling glad they came to church today? All right. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. How many people have ever been guilty of slander, gossip, or guilt of silence when you should have spoken? 
Aiden sticks on the side of the booth there, sticks his arms up. Jesus says in Matthew 5, but let your yes be yes, your no be no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. How many of you have people in your life who you do not trust that their yes is yes and their no is no? Isn't that an uneasy feeling? Pam and I will be talking, I'll say, well, you know, they said this or that, and she'll say, do you believe them? I don't know. And then finally, you shall not covet. Now, the final commandment deals kind of closely with the first commandment of idolatry. But covetedness is a heart condition. And when you're constantly discontent with what you have versus what someone else has. Furthermore, not only do you covet what your other friend has, but you're kind of angry that they have it. Anybody have that going on? Okay, so just so we're clear. If you want to know why the crucifixion is so brutal, I want you to know that today you have confessed in front of everyone that you are an idolater, cursing, disobedient, murderous adulterer who steals and cheats. That's who you are. That's who I am. So, can you imagine if we introduce one another and I say, hey, Lee, I want to introduce you to my friend. Hey, this is my friend Lee. He's an idolater, cursing, disobedient, murderous adulterer who steals and cheats. You two have a lot in common. Perhaps you'd like to talk. Let's make this hit home. We've swallowed the hook. Anyone like to fish? Anyone like to do the old catch and release thing? And what's the hope? Like you're all excited when you catch that fish, but when you pull them up, what are you hoping? That they're, it's just on the edge of their lip and you can just pop that off, or if you're someone who's squeamish about touching fish, you kind of think, maybe I'll hold it up, and they took a picture, and then it flops off, and it's gone. Then you didn't have to touch it. But what's the worst fear? They swallow the hook, right? So we were just on vacation, and, and we're goofing around, and my niece Hallie is fishing off the dock, and she catches a catfish about this big. It swallows the hook. Now, Hallie doesn't want to deal with it, so who's she calling? Jack. Jack grabs his catfish, and Jack gets the hook out. A few seconds later, I walked by Hallie. I said, hey, did the catfish make it? She goes, yeah, he's right down there. And he's laying on his back on the bottom. And I said, Hallie, he's not going to make it. She goes, oh, he looks okay. I said, Hallie, fish don't normally lay on their back on the bottom of the lake. And she goes, is he going to die? And I went, Hallie. I'm not sure, but it don't look good. We want to think that sin is just a little thing. Like God's going to come up and he's going to go, hey, Paul, you're all right. You get this little, click, you're off the hook. No, you've swallowed a 10-prong hook, and it's wedged in there. And what's the problem when a fish swallows a hook deep in them? Can you get it out? Probably, but what's going to happen? You're going to kill them getting it out. So, we have a sin problem. And we have to understand that sin problem. And we have to understand the brutality of it because the hook is deep in us. Let's open up our Bibles to Mark chapter 15 because now we're going to look at the crucifixion. Our three for the road, number two, is this. We will never suffer like Jesus did on the cross, but when you love, suffering is inevitable. 
We're not going to suffer like Jesus on the cross, but when you love, suffering is inevitable. Look at chapter 15. We'll start at verse 21. Jesus has been flogged. He's been scourged. They are leading him off to crucifixion. And it says, Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, there's a lot of talk that this Rufus is the same Rufus that's mentioned in Romans 16. We don't know that for sure. As he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. Now, this is the, the crazy thing about it. If you would have heard that there was a crucifixion of Jesus and you heard that there was a Simon carrying the cross, who would you think it's going to be? Simon Peter. Where's Simon Peter? Hiding somewhere. And here comes this guy, more than likely from North Africa. He's journeyed 800 miles through pilgrimage to observe Passover in Jerusalem. And as he's heading out, he gets grabbed by a Roman. And he gets grabbed by a Roman because here's what the Roman can look at him. He can go, listen, this guy's definitely not a Roman. Number two, he's probably not a Jew either. So I'm not going to get the Romans mad. I'm not going to get the Jews mad. So I'll grab the foreigner because he has no rights. Hey, carry this cross. Historians will say, and I know like in, in theater productions, they'll show Jesus dragging an entire cross. I doubt that that's true. And historians would say that it's not. The cross would weigh over 300 pounds. It would be hard for a healthy man to carry a cross. They said that the Romans leave the vertical stand always in the ground. What the man would carry is the horizontal beam, which is interesting. Jesus' relationship with his father was fine. Why was he on the cross? For the horizontal beam. And what they would do is they would tie him to this thing. So he's got to bear this weight. But of course he's been flogged, he's bleeding, he's probably all torn apart. And so what do they do? They grab this guy Simon and say, hey, help this guy carry it. Now Simon probably doesn't even know who Jesus is. And yet he's got to touch him. He's got to get underneath this thing and he's got to help carry this. And the blood of Jesus is getting all over this guy. And then furthermore, as the crowd is hurling insults and throwing things, you ever hear the term guilty by association? This guy, Simon's going, I, 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 didn't do, I'm not, I didn't do this. And while they're parading these guys to Golgotha, he's going, listen, I'm just here to carry the cross. I'm just here. And he's getting spit at and things thrown at him. It keeps going. And they brought him to the place, the, the place Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull. And they gave him wine ming. Uh, mingled with mirth to drink, and he did not take it. Now what they would do is, this was a powerful narcotic. It's actually mentioned in Proverbs that men who are under this type of execution, out of mercy, the women would prepare this thing that literally would knock the senses out of them. It would dull the pain and basically make it so they don't even know what's going on. If anyone's ever taken a muscle relaxer, they know what that's like. You're just completely out of your mind. You don't even know what's happened. And Jesus refuses it. Why? Because I'm going the distance. And so they would bring him to this place. Simon gets away. And they would take Jesus and they would, first off, lay him on the ground and they would nail him now to that. You don't nail him beforehand because there's always this possibility of him going in shock and collapsing and dying. You don't want him to die on the way to the cross. So they nail him to this. 
And then they hoist him up in the air while he's hanging by his wrists. And they attach the horizontal beam to the ver vertical beam, and then they stake his feet into it. And so the idea is, is that you do it so that there's just a little bit of a bend at the knee so that every breath you have to pull up and pull, push on nails to breathe. Most of the people who would die in crucifixion, they said would die of heart failure or die of suffocation because they no longer can raise themselves up. And here's how twisted this is. If you plead with Pilate, if you plead to Rome for mercy, they'll come and break their legs so that they'll die quicker. They said that the Roman guards are there to guard the bodies. They're to guard the bodies from people trying to put them out of their misery. Because they would literally, they're not guarding to make sure, not, no, they're guarding to make sure don't anyone try and kill any of these guys. They will suffer. Some crucifixions lasted a couple of days. It's brutal. And so they hang Jesus up there, and this is going on, and it says, uh, and when they crucified him, they divided garments, casting lots that they, to determine what every man should take. Now, this is directly out of Psalm 22. And they crucified him. And it says, now the third hour they crucified him. An inscription of his accusation was written above the king of the Jews. Can you imagine when Simon gets done carrying this beam? And he gets there and they crucify Jesus. And he goes, all right, I, I wonder what he's guilty of. And he said, the king of the Jews. And I think Simon probably looked at the other crosses and saw what these guys are guilty of. And they're like, what, what, is, what does that mean? He's being crucified because he's the king of the Jews? I don't even know who he is. With him, they also crucified two robbers, one to his right and the other to his left. So the scripture was fulfilled that he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who will destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. You know what? It's awful when you're going through something terrible in life. It's even worse when there's people coming by telling you you're going through something awful. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking themselves and with the scribes said, Now guys, catch this line. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. So they admit what? He saved others. No one asks the question, why doesn't he save himself? This doesn't make sense. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Now we read in Luke... Uh, that one of them had a change of heart and came to know Christ as his Savior. But let's like make this hit home. We will never suffer like Christ did on the cross, but when you love, suffering is inevitable. Suffering is part of life and love. It really is. This week I had lunch with Ed and Sue, and I was telling Sue about a friend of mine who's a pastor. His mom is elderly, but his mom is in very good physical shape. But she has Alzheimer's. And her mind has been completely robbed from her. She no longer knows who she is. She no longer knows who her sons are. Her, she no longer knows who her grandchildren are. And for my friend, it is difficult to see someone you know and love no longer know or love you. Can you imagine that? 
Love opens a gateway to suffering. It's another part of the tragic fall of humanity. See, God didn't intend suffering, but we brought suffering in. We brought suffering in. One of the most influential uh, bands of, of my growing up was a band called U2, and they're still influential to this day. I remember seeing an interview with the lead singer, this guy Bono, and he was talking about uh, how they had reached a point as a band where he said, we got to this point, we were sitting in the studio, and he goes, there's so much life between us. There's so much good times, hard times, bad times, hurt feelings, all these things that he said, at one point you sit across from one another, and the four of us are staring into each other's face, and one of us says, are we done? Is this it? Is there no more songs to sing? Is there nothing more to say? Has our relationship gone through so much that we can't go further? And Bono said, he sat there and he said all that kept going through his mind. Now Bono has professed Christ in his life and he said some pretty amazing things on stage of which I've witnessed. But he said all that kept going through my head was the word one. We're one. We're one. And he wrote one of the most powerful songs they had written in a long time. Listen to some of these lyrics. It's like a poem to his bandmates. He says, did I disappoint you or leave a bad taste in your mouth? You act like you've never had love and you want me to go without. Well, it's too late tonight to drag the past out into the light. We're one, but we're not the same. We get to carry each other. We need to carry each other because we're one. Have you come here for forgiveness? Have you come to raise the dead? Have you come here to play Jesus to the lepers in your head? Did I ask too much? More than a lot. You gave me nothing. Now it's all I've got. We're one, but we're not the same. We hurt each other, and we'll do it again. You say love is a temple. Love is the higher law. Love is a temple. Love is the higher law. You ask me to enter, but then you make me crawl, and I can't keep holding on to what you got when all you have is hurt. When all you have is hurt. And then he finishes it off and he says, we're one love, we're one blood, we're one life, you've got to do what you should. We're one life with each other, sisters and brothers. You know, as a parent, how many of you have experienced this? Something gets broken in the house, something's not right. And you walk into the house and you say, hey, who did this? And what's the response you always get? I didn't do it. I never asked who didn't do it. I asked who did do it. We brought suffering into this world. And everything in God could say, hey, you know what? I didn't do that. You suffer then. You brought sin into this relationship. You brought brokenness into this relationship, then you suffer with it. But rather than sidestep it or pull away, our gracious Heavenly Father immerses himself in the depths of our suffering. Not only suffering with us, but on the cross, suffering for us. Do you understand the Father's love? That's something he is completely not responsible for in the least bit. He's willing to say, Eric, I'll go into that suffering with you. Eric, 
I'll die on the cross and suffer for you. In this life, I will suffer with you. And on that cross, I will suffer for you. Why, Jesus? Because I love you. Because I love you. Let's finish it up. Three for the road, number three. Paid in full, no work required. Paid in full, no work required. Let's pick up at verse 33. Now the sixth hour had come. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachiah, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, you know, it's interesting. I heard somebody say, well, you know, when they wrote the Bible, a lot of people, they, they just kind of add their thing into it and they exaggerate. I don't believe that. I don't believe that at all. Because you know what? When Jesus was born... What declared it first? The heavens. And when Jesus died, what declared it first? The heavens. Now, you know, I'm probably too into history than probably you like. And I know that you come here and you go, I hear about Jesus and then I hear about all sorts of weird things. So this week, I was reading uh, from the writings of Pelagian the Trouse who was a Roman historian. And he wrote all sorts of chronicles. They're really kind of dull and boring. But they're historical content of the Roman Empire and different things. So I wanted to put this quote up to you because they say that he's one of the great historians of the Roman Empire and that the things that he said match up very well with what other archaeological finds they have and other writings they found. And this is something he wrote. It's interesting. Not a believer. In the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, there was an extraordinary eclipse of the sun. At the sixth hour, the day turned into dark night so that the stars in the heaven were seen and there was an earthquake. Now, underneath that, what I love is I love modern scientists and modern uh, theologians, what they wrote. Somebody put a parenthesis and added in this is impossible because during the Passover, it was a full moon. The author is mistaken. And I thought, hold on. The guy wrote 16 volumes that people take as strong historical content, and in this quote of something that is unbelievable, they go, well, he has to be wrong. Really. So today I'm telling you, to please believe what the pagan worshiper said. Darkness comes over the land. The earth begins to quake. And in Jesus cries out, the most painful verse, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because at that moment, God the Father did something that he had never done. And Jesus had never experienced. He turned his back on the sun. And Jesus knew it. And he calls out almost like knowing the answer. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's because you are that idolater. You are that murderous slanderer. You are that adulterer. You are that cheater. You are the thief. 
Jesus, you have no part with me. And Jesus knew it. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. To be sin. Do you realize that I don't need anyone to make me into a sinner? I can do that. God had to make Jesus be sin. Isaiah 53.10 yet, yet is pleased the Lord, yet it is pleased to the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. One writing written 100 years after the crucifixion, one written 700 years before it. Let's finish it up. Some of them who stood by, when they heard it, they said, look, he is calling for Elijah. He's not calling for Elijah. People never understood what Jesus is doing. Do you remember in Luke chapter 2 when Jesus is a young boy and he, he leaves his parents and he ends up at the temple. Remember the parents come back to the temple and what do they say? What have you done to us? Where are you supposed to be? They're all angry. And what did Jesus respond? I'm in my father's house doing my father's work. Where did you expect me to be? They didn't understand. Jesus calls out to his father, and they think, oh, is he, is he calling out to Elijah? You dummy. If he was going to call out to a person, he'd call out to David. He's not going to call out to Elijah. And I didn't even go to Hebrew school. Let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and he breathed his last. And in John, we learned that he breathed his last, and he said, it is finished. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from where? Top to bottom. Top to bottom. Why? Because man couldn't tear it. Only God could tear it open. So when the centurion stood opposite him, saw that he cried out like this and breathed this last, he said, truly this man is the son of God. And I'm going to tell you something. This guy watched people die all the time. That's what these guys did. But when he saw Jesus die, I think he observed what was going on and said, listen, something is going on in our world. Something is going on in our universe. It is dark. The earth is quaking. This man is calling out, and it has to be only to God. And when he dies like that so quickly, he says, he is the son of God. Listen to a Roman pagan worshiper this morning. And then we hear the real heroes of the faith. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the last son of Josie and Salome, who, were also, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. I can't stand when I hear people talk about women as somehow being like second class and yet jesus said no i'm going to surround myself with these type of people and when everyone else scattered where were the women there where was his mother right there right there when i was going through this stuff with my back my mom calls me <laughs> and it, my relationship my mom i love her to pieces but it's funny how she talks to me you didn't preach last week, that guy Rob preached. I said, yeah, he did. What's going on with you? 
I said, well, Mom, you know, I hurt my back. I know I was at the wedding. I saw you. Okay, I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. I am your mother. Now be honest with me and tell me. I'm, tell I'm your mother. You have to tell me the truth. All right, Mom. I'll talk to her. Because moms don't quit being moms. It doesn't matter how old you get. I keep getting older. She keeps being my mom. It's how it works. They ministered to Jesus. They loved him. They cared for him. They took care of him. And the one thing that I think had to give Jesus comfort is he hung on that cross and his sweat and blood and everything ran down through his eyes. Then he looked out and he saw people who loved him. And it was those women. Let's finish this up. Paid in full, no work required. There is a word in the ancient Greek, tetelestah. Tetelestah is, it means completion. They believe that this is what Jesus said, the word he would have said, because translated it means it is finished. Other synonyms for it mean paid in full, but there's a synonym that, they were, that workers would use. How many people ever do any kind of painting? How many people hate doing painting? Yeah, a couple. You know how someone will say, like if I said, hey, Sue, did you finish painting that room? And Sue might say, everything's done. It just needs a little bit of touch-up, right? Or fix some things. To tell us that to a worker means no touch-ups required. There's nothing else required. When Jesus said it is finished, he said, there's nothing else required. I have finished it. So it's not like Jesus says, okay, well, I did all these different things, but Austin, you better kind of finish this thing up because there's some rough edges. No, no. It's finished. Telestai. It's complete. There's no touch-ups required. So I'll finish up my week with this. So this week, I'm going through this stuff. I'm thinking about sin. I'm thinking about the crucifixion. I'm thinking about all these things. And I'm struggling and struggling and struggling. And I remember at one point, I'm walking around and I'm praying. And I felt like God said, Eric, do you understand what your real struggle is here? Your struggle is not to understand the cross. Your struggle is not to explain the cross. Your struggle is to give a sermon your struggle isn't to come up with three nifty, three for the roads. No, Eric, what your struggle is deeper. Eric, your struggle is you have a hard time realizing you're forgiven. And that's your struggle. It's not about the cross. It's not about the scourging. It's not about Jesus dying for sins. It's that, Eric, all of that I did so that you can be forgiven. And that's what the problem is, Eric. You're overwhelmed by your sin. You're overwhelmed by your guilt. And all I keep saying is, Eric, you're forgiven. Eric, you're forgiven. But Lord, I, Eric, you're forgiven. But I just, these things, Eric, you're forgiven. And every time as I'm walking and praying, things come up, I say, but Lord, I struggle. You're forgiven. Lord, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. How many people have an easier time forgiving someone than being forgiven? Because we don't like that. Forgiven. And all I kept saying 
is coming to the Lord with all these things that I'm struggling. Sin, regret, shame, hurt, pain. And all Jesus kept saying to me is, Eric, no touch-ups required. Forgiven. Forgiven. I want you to stand up. The worship team's going to come forward. But today, amidst all of the things that you've shared, and guy, listen, there are weeks that go, like, Erica, I'm praying for you. You're going through this with your friends. I, it's hard. I wish I could say, well, Erica, everything's all right. No, it's not. It's hard. But all I can tell you is that when you're going through these things, go into them forgiven. Interact with people forgiven. You know, the most powerful thing you have to offer to other people is your own transformed life. I used to always think, all right, I'm going to convince someone about Jesus Christ. And I'd give them all these things and quote all these things and all these great things. I can't convince anyone of anything. All I can convince is that I'm living in the reality that I'm a broken, sinful man and I'm forgiven. And they could be forgiven too. Forgiven. And so when you go home and you interact with your family, Interact as one who's forgiven. When you go to the store, act like someone who's forgiven. When you're dealing with extended family on vacations, and sometimes that's wonderful, and sometimes that's forgiven. Forgiven. Because if I carry myself knowing that I'm forgiven, then guess what? What other other people are doing, it's okay, because I can say, you know what? I've been forgiven, and you could be too. And what a difference it makes. So I want to pray for us. But before I pray, I want everyone to come up front because we're going to sing together as a family. So you can just move on up here. Stacy hasn't bit anyone in a long time. So you don't have to be scared of her. But we're going to, I'm going to pray for us. And we're going to sing. Why? We are forgiven. Forgiven. One of the greatest things I've seen in a long time was a debate between an atheist and a, and a minister. And this atheist says, I don't understand Christianity. I don't understand all this stuff. How can you worship a tomb? And the guy's not even in it. And he knew he said the wrong thing. And the guy goes, hallelujah. He is risen and I'm forgiven. And at that point, the, the guy just had to walk off the stage. There's nothing else you can say. The grave is empty. You're forgiven. Let's pray, and then we're going to sing. God, thank you for this day. And Lord, I thank you that you call me your child. You call me your son. But the greatest thing that I can say is I am forgiven. Because when you hung on that cross, it is finished. Paid in full. No touch-ups required. And so God, amidst the mourning, amidst the sorrow, amidst like we love people around us but it's complicated and it's hard and there's death and there's sickness and there's heartbreak and there's heartache and there's all these things lord we can encounter them forgiven and lord it literally took me six days this week of just agonizing over these whole thing that i just had to come to you and realize that everything you say is true and lord i am forgiven and thank you so lord as we lift our voices with this song lord let us do it 
because there's an empty grave and we are forgiven. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.